0: Just people get lost in there. They just get partway through it. And then I think the result of Leviticus ends up being, oh, thank you, Jesus, for the Gospels. Um, Leviticus was all about the preparing of the priesthood under the Old Covenant for serving before the Lord, praying, leading others, standing in their uh, office as, as a priesthood. Now, I've been in a series for a number of weeks. This is um, number five called Prayer That Connects. There's nothing more critical as a Christian to your life on the earth than your ability to pray in a way that actually connects. But there are so many Christians that truth be told, uh, and we're honest, they have a love-hate relationship with prayer. Prayer's frustrating. I don't know why they'd don't get answers. They don't always feel that they're connecting. But that was never God's will. God's will was always, if you listen to Jesus' conversation with the disciples in John 16 at the Last Supper, he said, after I've risen from the dead, he said, you will ask the Father whatever you need and he loves you. You'll know that he loves you and you'll ask and you'll receive and your joy will be made full. That's the standard. But that doesn't always happen, and it's not because what he said isn't true. It's because, sadly, number one, we don't understand a lot of the essential things that are important to understand about prayer. Um, and number two, Satan fights our prayer life. He probably fights it more than anything else in your life. Um, your ability to connect and commune, he tries to attack it with uh concepts that just simply clutter the truth make fellowship with God difficult Um, in one way or another he's always fighting so we we want through this series to kind of clear that up and give some clarity so prayer that connects part five this morning is called grace righteousness and truth and I'm going to read just the first three verses Leviticus 16 but I'm going to give you an assignment I'm going to ask you to go home and read the entire chapter um, we're not going to do that this morning, but we're going to get a running start at it. And um, this message isn't about Leviticus 16. It's about preparation for prayer. How to prepare, prepare to pray. And it's, it is a replacement for the notion... That prayer is just something you do off the cuff, casually, wherever you happen to be, in whatever state of mind you find yourself. Any kind of condition of mind or heart is a proper condition to pray because prayer is empowered by the fact that God is always listening. So it doesn't really matter our position of where we're at, our attitude. Um, Prayer works because God is full of grace and he loves everyone and he's just eager for, he's just dying for somebody to talk to. And uh, so he's just grateful for any kind of prayer we happen to throw up to him. That, that concept really needs to be challenged and replaced with a more healthy, realistic concept of what God requires in prayer. And so you may be surprised. You know, I'm a huge, um, I, I lean heavy on the area of grace, the grace of God. So you may be a little, little surprised at this message. Um, but I don't think so. I, it'll make perfect sense to you. I think it really is a message about God's grace. So Leviticus 16 and 1, God speaks to Aaron after Aaron's two sons um, who were priests, and Aaron was the first high priest that God appointed, so his lineage, the tribe of Levi, was to be the priesthood for Israel. So his two sons Decided, well, we're in the priest business, and we need to uh, fire up these sacrifices. So they kind of approached it like you would fire up your grill, and they just simply ran out and got their big lighters out, and uh, fired up their censer, threw some incense in, and started to um, go and offer sacrifices for the people. And fire from the altar of God, that fire that had fallen from heaven and lit that altar, shot out and killed them both and uh, so Aaron is a little freaked out and God speaks to Moses and this is what God said Uh, Leviticus 16 1 after the death of Aaron's two sons when they drew near before the Lord offering false fire and died the Lord said to Moses tell Aaron your brother he must not come at all times or at any time the idea here is just casualness whenever it suits Aaron. Um, He must not come at all times into the holy of holies within the veil before the mercy seat upon the ark lest he die for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat but Aaron shall come into the holy place in this way and then you can read the rest of the chapter for yourself. So all I want you to do is key in on the fact that that God said to Moses, there's a way to come. And tell Aaron, warn Aaron, don't come just any old way that you see fit. There is a way, a prescription, a preparation. And I will lay it out for you. And the Lord laid out some incredibly in-depth and detailed and a and little bit, little bit uh, strenuous, if you will, preparations. There's ten of these preparations, And uh, I'm going to share them with you. But before, let me just talk a little bit about the concept of uh, preparation to pray. God has laid out a way, everyone say way, way, for us to prepare to enter his presence. Now, when we enter God's presence, the connection that we seek must be based on the fact that we are accountable to God for our lives. And not just he's there, he's able to give us what we want and so we come to ask. But when we come before God, God looks upon us and he sees that we must account to him for our lives for he made us. We derive our existence from him. So there's an accountability that ought to be in the back of our minds when we approach prayer rather than I'm going to ask and I'm going to get what I want. Now, therefore, we can't approach prayer in ways that are based on our convenience, but happen to be irreverent or disregard God's honor. So we need to be aware of God's honor and our accountability to him when we pray, if we're going to be successful. So a couple of chapters before this, in chapter 10, it says that uh, Nadab and Abihu, that was Aaron's two sons. Aren't you glad you named your kids Davy? Uh, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took their censer and put fire in it and put incense on it and offered strange and unholy fire before the Lord as he had not commanded them. And there came forth from before the Lord uh, fire that killed them and they died before the Lord. So let me just summarize that lest anybody leave this morning terrified. To approach God in prayer. Because uh, all of you are here, so none of you have died. Fire hasn't come out from your Bibles and consumed you or when you prayed. But there's still something here that actually happened and happened for a reason. And if I could summarize it, I would say casual motivations. Disrespect God and kill prayer. Now, casualness is not the same as comfort. God wants us to be confident, wants us to be comfortable in his presence. So he's not wanting us to be dancing around and full of fear and unbelief and terrified. But casualness has to do with putting our own convenience first. So that's what casualness means. And so God is basically saying that don't allow yourself as you approach prayer to be motivated with the first consideration being given to your convenience because you're likely going to end up disrespecting God and failing to honor him and to recognize his honor he comes first Jesus said it like this in Matthew 6 seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness all these things will be added. So let me say to you God wants to bless you there's he's more eager to love to bless to to enhance to lift up you, But it can't happen if you regard yourself more than you regard him. If it doesn't matter to you to find out the worth of God's honor, then you're really not approaching him understanding who you're approaching. You're just simply going to your favorite restaurant. Okay, so God lays out ten preparations for Aaron in order to enter God's presence and receive the blessings that he wants to give. Now let me say this, that since God's requirements for holiness, holiness did not pass away with the coming of the New Testament, God still requires holiness just as much as he required holiness in the Old Testament. It's just that the way, and, and you can get yet last week's message, it's all about this. It's the way we appropriate holiness is different. Rather than embracing the regulations of the Old Testament, we embrace Jesus who fulfilled the regulations. But the net result of it having an effect of holiness in our life is still paramount, and God still demands, be holy for I am holy. So since those requirements for holiness have not passed away, these ten preparations that I'm going to share with you, and I'm not going to share all ten of them this morning, we're going to get to get through three of them, um, These ten preparations still remain in place today. It's just that we don't practice their symbolic rituals as Aaron did. Instead, we practice their actual fulfillment through our relationship with Jesus. So as I share with you these ten symbolic rituals that Aaron went through, Understand, Jesus fulfilled them, and as you embrace Jesus and treat Him, and your relationship with Him, as Aaron treated these commandments, the Lord will bring you into holiness and compliance, and you'll be prepared to pray. Okay, uh, these ten steps can be found in Dr. Miles Monroe's book, Understanding the Purpose and Power of Prayer. Just in case you're interested, I highly recommend it number one. Preparation number one is appropriate God's grace. We begin by appropriating the grace of God. The very first thing that God prescribed to Aaron was for him to uh, cover his sins and the sins of the people that he was going to be interceding and praying for with the prescribed animal sacrifices that would be offered up. And so that was the very first thing that God said to Aaron. Get those sacrifices that I tell you and offer them for your own sins and for the sins of the people that you are going to be praying for. This means that God's provision to deal with sin comes before everything. It comes before praise and it comes before petition. I know the Bible says, enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. But I assure you that our approach to God must begin with God's grace to cover our sin because God cannot receive praise, petition, or any other communication or communion out of a life that is holding back, sheltering, and harboring sin. Now, I've already talked and shared with you about moral perfection. Holiness is not moral superiority or moral perfection. It is being dedicated unto God. And it takes honesty, humility, and again, get last week's message, you'll understand. But the animal sacrifices that were sacrificed that God prescribed to Aaron were all symbols of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who would purge us of our sins. So God on credit would honor Aaron and the people of the Old Testament when they would offer those animal sacrifices if they in doing it number 1 did it as he prescribed, number 2 had faith and believed that God wanted to forgive them and was providing a way for them to be forgiven. So if they did that, God honored their faith and held them over. And even after they died, kept them from going into hell, descending into hell in a place called Abraham's bosom, kind of the upper uh, regions, if you will, of the dead, and in a place called paradise. And until Jesus the lamb of God was sacrificed at Calvary. And then the Bible says when Jesus rose from the dead, he stopped by Abraham's bosom and he collected up all those people Abraham and and Aaron and Moses and all those all those Israelites that died in faith believing that God wanted to and was willing to forgive their sins because this the actual sacrifice Jesus the lamb of God was offered that their symbolic sacrifices represented when they did that in faith. So you understand the animal sacrifices symbolized Jesus the Lamb. Now, God's willingness to remove our sins and give us a new life through Jesus is called grace. Grace is not permission to stay the same. Grace is power to move forward. Power to be more. That power comes by the gift of God, not through our religious intensity and and our abilities to turn ourselves into something because our righteousness is, every one of us, beginning with me and every single one of us, are incapable in and of ourselves to uphold that standard of righteousness. That's why it's called grace, and Jesus has done that for us. Amen. So now, to receive God's grace... You must be willing to deal with your sins through Jesus' atonement. The word atonement, A T O N E M E N T, could be thought of as a contraction of atonement. It's the word atonement refers to what Jesus did at Calvary's cross when He paid the price for the penalty of our sins, removing that penalty of death away. So that we are now viewed by the Father as completely forgiven and purged of sin. Then as he raises from the dead, he sends the Holy Spirit who imparts his very nature into the life of the forgiven former sinner, the forgiven, so that they are now made a new creation. And we walk now in a new perfect nature, the nature of Jesus Christ in us. We still stumble, we still make mistakes, we live in a... Uh, a flawed culture. We still have that, hu- that body and that human nature, but we have the power, the privilege of forgiveness, that we can come before the, the Father and be honest, say, Father, forgive me. I am a new creation in Christ. I, I, I confess my faults, my shortcomings, and that status has changed. You're now not a sinner, but you are a child of God, forgiven, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, and He's willing to forgive us on an ongoing basis. So now if we are not willing to deal with our sins and we think grace just simply becomes this barrier, this reflective barrier where we're sinning as Christians, but God doesn't see it because he is in a state of grace and we're under a state of grace. And people think that it violates the grace of God to confess your sins or to say, Father, forgive me, or to admit that you've sinned. And so they think that faith in the grace of God is ignoring the fact that you as a Christian have sinned. 1 John says, if we sin, we have an advocate. And if we say we haven't sinned, we're lying. I know that verse applies to me. And I'm pretty sure that it applies to you as well. So I want to first say to you, that you and I must be willing, when we think of coming before God in prayer, the very first thing we have to do is be willing to deal with our own sin. And we don't deal with it by covering it up. We don't deal with it with promises to be better. We don't deal with it by flogging ourselves in the presence of God and saying, Lord, I'm an idiot. Oh, I'm so stupid. You might feel that way towards yourself. You might want to bang yourself upside the head and say, what's wrong with me? I'm such an addict. But instead, you recognize the atonement. You come and say, Father, Jesus is my Savior. I I confess my fault and I ask you to forgive me. The Father says, I love you. You'll feel that grace reaching around you, embracing you. You feel your heavenly Father lifting you up because you're being honest and you're coming before him. That's the power of the atonement, going to work. But if we hide the fact that we're sinning, hide those sins, Don't bring them up before God and try to run before God in prayer. We're not going to get anywhere. We're going to be throwing a lot of theological language at God, and it's just going to hit the wall and slide right off. It just goes nowhere. This is why a lot of Christians are frustrated with their prayer life, is they think that from the Old to the New Testament there's been this transition, and God doesn't deal with the issue of sin anymore. And that just isn't true. Or they're afraid to even talk about it, thinking that, well, if we talk about sin, people aren't going to come to our church. But the fact is, the whole world is walking around in this disease, and they're going crazy and losing their minds, trying to figure out uh, how to cure and rectify the problem, when the reality is, is that at the core of the issue is the fact that Adam and Adam's race are broken, their connections broken, through sin. And sin is the issue that needs to be dealt with in each individual's life. That takes it completely out of the hands of who's better than who, who's got more money than who, who's got better status than who. Everybody's equalized in that everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that puts everybody in the same need. And Jesus' blood provides the same Answer and the same help. You know, it's a wonderful, wonderful. I mean, I just see the grace in that. Praise the Lord. So, you know, if you think about the Lord's prayer, Our Father who is in heaven, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, you think, well, he, Jesus didn't tell us that we should begin with dealing with sin. Oh, really? Well, I beg to differ. Our Father in heaven, those very words imply that something has happened to change our status from a rebel and a sinner to a child of God. Sonship is implied in the in the address, our Father, and that very implication has in it the blood of Jesus. I can say, Father, because the blood... So if when I address Father, Lord, I come to you, um, Father in heaven. And I immediately know that I've got a double mind. I'm coming to God. I want to make a connection. I want peace. I want blessing. But I have, sins I committed last night or yesterday, or I'm purposing something in my heart the Holy Spirit's been convicting me about, I immediately have to bring that in line before the Lord. Father, I come before you and ask you to forgive me. I thank you. I address you as Father because you've given me a way to have that forgiveness. So, We cannot swerve aside and ignore the issue of the sins that separate us from God. Here's a practical application of this before we move on to preparation number two. We need to always come before the Father willing to turn from sin. Every time you pray, your heart needs to be willing to turn from sin. Let me tell you. This is why a lot of our prayers, and I say ours so I include myself, end up on the junk heap of unanswered prayers that don't go anywhere because we pray and God cannot be fooled. He knows that you are holding back in an area of your life that you're convicted about and you know it's sinful, you know it's not right, but you don't even want to pray about it because you're afraid God's going to convict you about it. You don't really want to deal with it yet. You're not willing to push it forward before the Lord and say, Father, talk to me about this. Is this right or not? Because we're afraid that if he says it isn't, oh man, I I'm not really finished with this. I don't want to deal with this. So the reality is, is there's a, a disconnect immediately because we're not trusting the Father. He loves you. He, whatever will, his will is for you, it's going to bless you and make you happy and make you strong. And it's going to lift you up, not burden you and shove you down. So when we come before Him, we have to come willing to turn from every sin because that's what ruins our lives and ultimately brings us into unhappiness. Now, here's the reality of it living in a corrupt society as we do, we're not always sure about sin. We're not really sure if what we're doing is sinful we're, we're coming before God and we're praying well i don't really know if is what i'm doing right or not God knows that there is a huge difference between presumptuous sin David called it in other words sin that you actually know is wrong and you plan to do it and you have no intention of you know letting God at it or dealing with it within yourself there's a difference between that and faults and errors that we constantly make because of that flawed world and corrupt society. And so we're just not sure. We're unaware. And, you know, the Catholic Church, I was never Catholic. I didn't know a whole lot. Of, I don't really know a whole lot about it. But I know that they kind of categorize sins. and. Um, I think they did a real good job, honestly, of identifying the difference between deliberate sins and sins of omission. Sins that you just, you know, you're leaving things undone that you ought to be doing and you're not sure. So listen to what David said in Psalm 19 and verse 12. Who can discern his lapses and errors? Let me read it again. David is, is saying, and he's addressing this before the Lord, who can discern or know his own lapses or his errors? Clear me from hidden and unconscious faults. Now, that wouldn't have made it into the Bible if that was an error, if that was wrong. And you read it in context in Psalm 19, you'll see that it's very right that God does see a difference. David is coming before him and saying, Lord, I'm really not sure of what's right and wrong in these areas of my life. What I am sure about, I bring it before you, but I'm not sure. So I ask you, Lord, to forgive me for those areas that I'm probably stumbling along and don't even know. Sometimes, for example, I've come home from church after a message, and I've sat down on the couch, and all of a sudden it's just hit me. I don't believe I said that. Oh my God, they'll never forgive me. I can't that come out of my mouth? Because I can be, I could be sarcastic, I can be surly, I can, you know, I, I've got a maniacal sense of humor, so stuff slips out sometimes. You know, I try to be clever with people and might say something offensive and I think, oh Lord, and you just cringe. And I've got things in my memory banks that I that they're from like 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. I still cringe over them. They're forgiven. I know they're forgiven. But I preach, which means that stuff happens, thoughts, activities, whatever, imaginations, and we're not conscious of them. We think about them afterwards. So clear me, Lord, of these lapses and errors. And in doing so, we're made aware. God helps us, He, he increases our authority and our ability to manage our own thoughts, actions, and words. So you can see the grace working. That's an an Old Testament verse, New Testament principle still with us today. So practically speaking, ask the Lord to examine your heart and your mind. Listen to this verse again from David, Psalm 26, verse 2. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Test my heart and my mind. Test my heart and my mind. Now, (laughs) in the King James, it says, "Test my heart or prove my heart, and try my reins." Well, for years I used to think I I like horses. I used to ride horses when I was a kid. and so I thought, reins. And I thought, well, that makes perfect sense. Try the reins of my heart. And I could see the Lord, you know, got, He's got the reins of my heart and He's turning me to the left and the right. And I'm like, happy Lord, just lead me the way you want me to go. And so I, um, I researched it and realized that the, the word was not reins like the reins of a horse, but it meant your kidneys. Renal failure, reins. Try my heart, test my filtration system. And it was a symbolic reference to the mind. The heart produces motives, but the mind takes those motives and applies action and function to our motivations. And so David is coming before God. He's saying, Lord, prove me. Test my heart and my mind, my thoughts. And so that's grace is coming before the Lord. Ask the Lord, Lord, sift through my mind, show me. How often do you and I excuse ourselves and refuse to allow ourselves to consider that God may want to continue your ongoing improvement in education? We just say, look, I'm a Smith's We Smiths are all this way. This is my daddy was this way. Grandfather, this is the way I am. We go to God and we celebrate. The Lord's changing me. Hallelujah. I'm a new creation in Christ. But then when God really wants to change you, there you are digging your heels in saying, this is the way I am. You're holding back those old patterns. But the Bible says we have to be willing to let God change us. Stop holding on to those patterns and habits of your old nature, while at the same time you expect to be able to pray and ask God to show you a new way, make the new creation to be effective in your life. God's trying to make you effective, so allow him to bring about that new nature in you, and don't hold back in that way. So, David, in Psalm 66, talks about him bringing the sacrifices of praise when he goes to the house of God. or and, the ho- and going to the house of God in the Old Testament was very much about going to pray, coming to pray and to go into God's presence in prayer. In the New Testament, we pray, we are the house of God. We pray when we're driving our car, we pray under a lot of conditions. But what I'm talking about this morning is not so much finding that physical prescribed condition to pray under, but that mentally prepared in preparation of your life and your attitude um, since you are that house of God. So David's talking about, I went to the house of God and I was praising God with a loud voice. I was praising God with great celebration. And in the middle of saying, I was praising God, celebrating Him with a loud voice, David said this, and you really want to mark this in your Bible if it's not marked already. Verse 18 to 19, Psalm 66, David said, Now, in the middle of praising God, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened and has attended to the voice of my prayer. Now, I always knew that verse from the King James translation, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Iniquity means lawlessness or the desire to sin, the the desire to go out and break God's commandments. But what he was really saying in the Hebrew language was not something as casual and light as uh, if I regard or if I think about iniquity. Because the devil uses that to beat Christians to pieces. You know, a man wisely said many years ago, you can't prevent the birds from flying over your head. But you can keep them from nesting in your hair. And so your mind's going to have really crazy, stupid, sinful, awful, lustful, violent thoughts that are going to, and you're going to think, where did that come from? Five o'clock evening news. Or whatever, you know, whatever zombie show is your, you know, show du jour, whatever. So, you know, thoughts are going through there. Let it come to pass. So... He's not saying if I regard iniquity in my heart. He's, the word regard is cherish. If I cherish, if I make it my own, if I claim for myself iniquity or lawlessness, the Bible says if I do it in my heart, the Lord will not listen to me when I pray. That answers a number of re- that answers questions about a number of our prayers that have not gone anywhere. <laughs> Amen. Not getting a whole lot of amens this morning. It's all right. I'm going to keep going. You know, I got a license, so I'm going to use it. Um, but God does hold you responsible for the sins you do know about. So if you cherish sin in your heart, the Lord's not going to hear you until you're willing to come before Him and deal with it. Now, if you're not bringing it before Him and deal with it because you're afraid you can't deal with it, let me help you. You can't deal with it. That's why you're keeping it from God. But he can help you. And it begins by putting it before him, saying, I'm willing to change. Help me, Lord. And he will love that. And he'll love you and he'll embrace you and he'll work with you. Because he's the one who wants you to overcome and He's going to help you do it. Now, we are responsible for the sins we do know about. So sheltering certain sins. Sheltering meaning compartmentalizing. While I come to God, I'm asking for help in this area of my life. I know that I'm practicing sin in this other area of my life, but that's in another room. And Lord, we're meeting in this room right now. So let's not be talking about that room. That's that room, not this room. person comes before God says, Lord, help me in my marriage, my relationship. You know, we're, we're having a t- difficult time. But in his business life or in her work situation, they're involved in some corrupt things. But they, that's my life over there. I'm praying about this. The Lord won't, see, the Lord won't do that. He sees your life holistically. And he, you can't, you can't push things and shelter them and think that because you can shelter it, God's going to shelter it. That's called hypocrisy. And it's, everyone say prayer killer. It's a prayer killer. Now, but if you bring your whole heart, with everything in it, under the blood of Jesus, it's an absolutely surefire guarantee that God will touch you with his grace, receive you, help you. And I'm just grateful that the Bible says God is love, which means he does not put me through the obstacle course of perfecting me in one 24-hour period. I couldn't survive it. I couldn't. My mind couldn't handle it. He kind of stretches it out over a lifetime. He deals with us very patient. He's not like any father. And I had a wonderful father. I love my dad, great great father, and so. But I know my heavenly father is even infinitely more patient and loving than that. But he demands, you'll see in a few minutes, honesty. So, First John. 1, 7, and verse 9 says, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. So just by walking honestly in the light, the blood is always working to cleanse you from those mistakes and those sins. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He wants that burden off your back. Hallelujah. Okay. Number two, these are a lot shorter than the first one, but the first preparation for prayer was to appropriate the grace of God. The second preparation is to put on righteousness. And that second preparation was when God said to Aaron, the second thing he was supposed to do was to bathe and wash himself and put on a special fine linen tunic or outfit. So he was to take off the heavy, hot clothes of daily life, wash himself, and put on this fine linen tunic, which symbolized righteousness as a lifestyle that God would give him to wear. Let me say that again, because that's a mouthful. That fine linen does not just symbolize righteousness as an abstract concept it symbolizes righteousness as a practiced life. That's why it had to be clothing that he put on. It was the only way God could could show him visibly. This covers everything about you. It's the first thing people see when they meet you, and it's something you put on. You walk in it. You work in it. It is righteousness as a lifestyle, not just a religious status. Now, for many years, for decades, I've taught on the position of righteousness and that is essential we have a position of righteousness at the throne of god through the blood of jesus but christians make the mistake of relying on positional righteousness and not making the next connection to the fact that god expects us to put on righteousness and make it a function and a lifestyle that righteousness if it's a position, it needs to become a life that you live. Now, Ephesians 4 and 24 says, Put on. Everyone say, Put on. Put on. Listen, he's using the same language God used to talk to Aaron about the second preparation for prayer. Put on the new nature, the regenerated self that was created in God's image, Godlike, in true righteousness and holiness. Now, I love the fact that he says, put on the new nature which was created in Christ in true righteousness. That means that the righteousness God's asking me to put on and asking you to put on is not self-effort effort on your part. No, I'm going to pick on Glenn because we know Glenn never makes any mistakes. So he's not going to feel like I'm, I'm, I'm jumping on him. But that means That the righteousness that God wants Glenn to walk in is not Glenn going out and trying to be a good person and his effort to be, there's nothing wrong with trying to be to to walk according to God's standards. There's nothing wrong with that. But the righteousness that Glenn is to walk in is not produced by his effort. His effort is to relate with Jesus so that as he makes those efforts, the Holy Spirit, having given him the nature of Christ within him, will arise up through those efforts and make him successful. So you see how I'm not going to restate it because I just think I said it about as good as it could be said out of my lips anyway. Somebody could probably do a better job. But you get the very basic idea, put on The the righteousness that God created in Christ, true righteousness, true righteousness is the life of Jesus in me, and true righteousness distinguishes it from mental righteousness. People think, well, I'm righteous in Christ, the Lord did it by His grace, I'm made righteous, so whatever I run around and do and say and think is okay. Because I am the righteousness of God in Christ. That's not true righteousness. True righteousness starts by saying, I have a position in Christ. He's made me righteous and I thank God for it. So because of it, I have a life of prayer and I'm coming before him. And I practice not just positional righteousness, but I walk with Jesus. I take up my cross daily and I walk with him. And I make mistakes, but he keeps picking me up. In other words, it's a function. It's a walk. It's a life. Somebody say, praise the Lord, if you get what I'm saying. If you want me to move on and stop beating on this point, just say amen. I'll get the the point. Hallelujah. Otherwise, you know, I'm terrible. I just get on a thing and just hang on it. And I'm looking around, somebody, smile and say, praise the Lord. And I'll be like, woo, on to the next. For prayer to be successful. Your relationship with Jesus cannot just be a set of beliefs. When Jesus removed your sins, he didn't just give you a do-over. What he did was he gave you a new life and a regenerated nature. You need to put it on, listen, and be that person. That's That's what putting on the linen is. Put it on and be that person. Be the person you've become in Christ. Um, one more thing, and then we'll, we'll go to the third, uh, the third preparation. In Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul writes about the whole armor of God, he uses that same phrase, put on. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So if you don't put on the whole armor of God, no, no putting on, no standing no putting on, no standing. Put on the whole armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So when it talks about the whole armor of God, Paul is connecting the idea of putting on righteousness. And by the way, in Ephesians, chapter 6, when it talks about putting on the whole armor of God, Paul is simply expanding the idea of putting on righteousness by showing that the new nature that he's given you to put on is actually the armor that Jesus wore when he kicked the devils behind every single day of his life and walked through this world. You're putting on the armor of who? You're putting on the whole, Paul said, put on the whole armor of God, not your armor, his armor. Helmet of salvation. You can read it for yourself. Um, But you put on the whole armor of God. And a guy years ago used to say, I used to love to hear him say it. He said, you know, keep the face mask down, man. You lift it up, the devil knows it's you in there. Keep it down, man. He thinks Jesus is coming at him. Because it's the whole armor of Jesus. That breastplate's out to here, man. It's built for the muscles Jesus had. There you are like a twig inside there. You know, you don't look half as good without the armor on as you do with the armor on. So put on righteousness. So the idea of the, 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 the righteousness that we put on is that it's armor that is designed for the battles of life. Praise the Lord. I'm getting excited. I, I need to keep myself calm. Um, so at any rate, the armor of God was designed to cover every facet of your life as you triumph over the enemy. And then he says the whole reason was not for you to run around and fight with demons. The whole armor of God so you could defeat the enemy was not so you could run out and engage the devil and fight with devils. Jesus defeated the devil. It's so that you can pray. Your battleground is in prayer. That's where your victories are won is on your knees and on your face before God. So you put that armor of God Again, is is God telling you, put on righteousness. Once you've dealt with the the blood and forgiveness and you've come with a right heart, then you put on righteousness. And man, you're on your way to being able to pray. Number three, three, final, at least for today, preparation for prayer is put on truth and honesty. Truth and honesty. The third preparation that God gave to Aaron was, he said, now that you've put this linen tunic on, he said, there's a, I want you to take a fine linen sash, and it was kind of a girdle, because he would say, gird yourself, wide linen sash, probably right up under the rib cage, down here to the loin area, and wrap it around yourself and pull it tight. Gird yourself with that fine linen sash, and that represented truth in the inward parts, holding those soft and delicate secret areas of your life together with honesty and with truth. Put on truth, put on honesty. That sash, as I said, covers those delicate inner areas of your life, the secret areas that you don't talk about with other people. God wants to get at those areas because he knows about them. And sometimes By not talking with other people about things, they become abstract even in our own mind. We're not really sure about where they're at in our life. But the secret areas of your life, God is very concerned about those things. And he wants the light to shine in those areas. He wants love to fill those areas. And so if those areas of your life, your internal organs, if they become diseased and dysfunctional, they will break down your entire system think about. I'm not going to name examples, but you get an idea. You get colon trouble and cancers. It stops everything. So your entire life will break down if you allow yourself to become dysfunctional in the internal secret areas of your life. And many people have been ruined because they allow disease in the quiet secret areas of their life instead of letting God come in and, and bring the righteousness there. Psalm 51, David said, behold, You desire truth in the inward parts. And in the inward parts, you shall make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. So David comes to God, and he doesn't say, Lord, I'm going to deal with the inward parts of my life, and I'm going to clean myself up inwardly. He realizes that is the deep, deep area of your life. And God doesn't want you going in there monkeying around. Any more than he wants you to get a psychologist in there monkeying around with all that inner stuff. Because they don't know what they're doing and you don't know what you're doing. But God can work with you in dealing with those inner areas of your life. And he is wanting to and he's willing. So David cries out to God. He says, Lord, you desire truth in the inward parts and the hidden part. Make me to know wisdom. You purge me. And I will be clean. And come before the Lord and ask God, help me in those inner areas, those deep areas of my mind and my heart. Let me just finish that by saying simply, offering you this phrase, Handling the truth of God's word with honest introspection into your deep inner life will guarantee protection against the diseases of hypocrisy and deception. All right. Those are the first three preparations. Summarize this without repeating them. These are preparations that God says, do these things in order to come before me so that you can pray and not die like your two sons did. That's what he said to Aaron. He said, your two sons died because they didn't think that, God, that you need to prepare that God was holy. But I'm telling you, you need to know what you're doing If you want to pray, just know I want to meet you in prayer. I want to bless you. But I need you to know who you're dealing with. You need to come before me. So you can see that God is not the least bit interested in a lot of religious show. He sees that it's hypocrisy. When the Pharisees did it, Jesus publicly called them out about it. It's meaningless. It's a show. means nothing to God. He wants truth in the inward parts. So we begin with those first three steps, and there's seven more to go, praise the Lord. And they just get better and better, praise God. But you'll see when we're finished, wow, to have a successful prayer life takes preparation of my entire being. Close your Bible if it's open, uh, shut off your phones, whatever, when you're done with your notes, and let's stand together, we're going to pray. Um, Our altar call this morning